0: Good morning. I do hope you will plan to be with us this upcoming Wednesday. It is a wonderful night of worship. I understand Thanksgiving can be a busy day, especially for those that are preparing food. And I cook a few times a year. I'm not against it. I enjoy it. But life dictates I get to do it a few times a year. And when I cook, it is an all-day extravaganza. I do not know how women and mothers prepare meals that come out 10 things on the table, all hot at the same time. It boggles my mind. So I hope somebody competent is cooking for you on Thanksgiving, and I hope that you will take an hour Wednesday night to join us as we turn our hearts and our minds to the Lord and thank Him for His goodness. It will be uh, uh, just about an hour. We recognize that it can be a busy time, but we want to take time and spend it together, worshiping the Lord. My dad is going to preached to us uh, Wednesday night, and uh, so I know many of us got to hear from him at the men's conference, but he's going to be preaching, so we're excited for that. We're going to continue this morning in our series on Acts. We're going to be looking at the the beginning verses of Acts chapter 2 again, but before we get there, I want to ask you, what was the best gift that you ever received? That's a hard question to answer. You know, what do I want? Am I going like the spiritual route? Is the right answer salvation? Is it my spouse? Is it that thing she got me, you know, five years ago that was really an awesome gift? I think for a lot of us, is if I asked you individually, what was the best gift you ever got? I think we'd often, for some reason, think back to a much earlier time. When I think about the, the gifts that I remember receiving, they're the childhood gifts that I got as a child. And I don't know whether that's due to like, nostalgia, thinking back on childhood, or maybe it's because as you get to be an adult, you get things all the time, you have more ability to buy things, and so you have packages that come off of the FedEx or Amazon truck like every week, and so receiving packages as an adult you know, isn't, doesn't have quite the same feel as it did when you were a child. But what I do know is that all of us, every single one of us, like receiving gifts. It's the way we're made. God designed you, and He designed me, to love and enjoy the benevolence, the kindness of others extending their love to you in the form of something or a gesture. It doesn't really even matter what it is. Right now, I'm the father of six kids. And so I probably receive more, numerically, more gifts at this point in my life than I ever have. I get candy gifts. I get drawing gifts. I get little back rub gifts. I get all sorts of things. And I love all of them because I love my kids. And I, I enjoy receiving the tokens of their love for me. But of course, when we're thinking about the giving of gifts... We need to remember that Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And I'm sure that many of you know this to be true. Jesus said these words from experience. He gave it all. And there is no one that's more blessed than God himself. God is the giver of all things. James 1 says that all good and perfect things, perfect gifts come down from the Father, Who is above. And the reason that you love giving and receiving gifts is simply that there's something of God's perfect love expressed in it. That's the reason you enjoy receiving gifts, that's the reason you enjoy giving them. This morning, we continue to look at the circumstances surrounding the giving of a great gift the giving of the Holy Spirit. In Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, he says this. Each one of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he, Jesus, listen, when Jesus ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Jesus is a gift giver. And His greatest gifts are given to us through the power of His Holy Spirit. That's what the Scripture teaches us. New birth, salvation, new life in Christ is given through the Holy Spirit. The gifts that we receive, that we learn about in some of the other epistles of of Paul, are gifts that we receive from Christ through the Holy Spirit. The power that Jesus gives to us in himself is given to us through the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who lives within us. And so with this idea in mind, the great precious gift of the Holy Spirit, I want us to stand, and I want us to open our Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're going to read the first 13 verses. This is God's word. Now on the day of Pentecost, when the day of Pentecost had come, they, the disciples and women, about 140 people, were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak With other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phygeria and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. The word of the Lord. Amen. Would you please raise your hands and pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come to you and we ask that you would now uh, reveal your word to us in a language that we discern, with words that are clear and speak to our hearts and not just our heads with words that change us rather than leaving us unchanged. Father, words in our culture are so cheap. We don't consider them of much importance or value, and yet that is not how you see them. And so we pray that your will would be done here, and we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So this passage we've just read, these 13 verses that we've just looked at together, or a Fulfillment Passage. What's that mean? A Fulfillment Passage. Over the past few years, you probably have noticed that, if you drive around Toledo, if you live around here, that this area has been graced with a handful of Amazon warehouses. Have any of you seen those? Been put up big, giant, glorious gray and blue boxes. And I'm not going to comment on the aesthetic look, am I? No, no, no. What are these places? These are Amazon warehouses. And what do they call them? They call them fulfillment centers, don't they? Fulfillment centers. Amazon has fulfillment services. These buildings are hubs that get what has been promised to us through a purchase delivered. Our passage is a fulfillment passage. What has been promised is now being delivered. And it is a great gift. In John 16, Jesus is on the cusp of being betrayed by Judas. And he gathered his disciples together and he said this to them. But now I'm going to go to him, his father, who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to to you, sorrow has filled your heart. He's addressing something that he, he knows his disciples are somewhat aware of. He's been speaking about his departure. He's been speaking about the fact that he's no longer going to be with them. And they are sad. They might be worried or nervous. So this is, he says, sorrow has filled your heart. This is the emotional context that he's speaking to them in. And he says, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I do go, I will send him to you. We talked about this passage a number of weeks ago. And he says, he goes on and says, and he, when he comes, will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. That's what the Helper, the Holy Spirit, is coming to do, the A a large part of his focus is convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He goes on to say, When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you in all truth. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. This is the work of the Holy Spirit as it relates to those that love Jesus. He will take the truth of Christ, the word of Christ, and disclose it to them. He will illuminate it to them. He will speak and teach them. All things that the Father has are mine, and therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So part of the Holy Spirit, as he is applied to you, is taking what is Christ's and applying it to you. They're in a great gift, isn't it? So this is a fulfillment. Our passage in Acts chapter 2 is a fulfillment of Jesus' promise to the disciples. It's an amazing thing that he tells them that it's to their advantage that he go away so that he might send the Spirit. This means that for as much power and glory as there was when Jesus was present on earth, there is more now. That's what Jesus is saying. There's more glory and power now. It's a crazy thing to wrap your mind around. And what is the purpose of this great advantage? The Holy Spirit has been sent into the world and offered to you so that you might come to new birth in Jesus and so that the church might be equipped to carry out her work in the world. He is sent to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment and to guide Christians in all truth. With this purpose fixed in our minds, I want us to put a little sticky note on that idea, on that reality. With that purpose, his purpose, fixed in our minds, I want to consider with you the effect of the Holy Spirit's arrival this morning. We're told in our passage, Luke, uh, Acts chapter 2, there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, throughout this book, time and time again, the extraordinary effects of the new birth of the Holy Spirit that it produces in men and women are going to be seen. We are going to see that those that were once cowardly become courageous. Those that were once persecutors of Christianity go on to become some of the the greatest preachers of the message of the good news of Christ. We're going to see that those that were once doubtful become absolutely convinced. Those that were once shaken and driven away by fear become unmovable and resolute in their commitment to Jesus and their stand for him. The effect of the Holy Spirit's life is extraordinary and comprehensive. It's magnificent and incomprehensible, and it is total. We talked about that last week. He fills the whole house. This morning, it's not my purpose to try to narrate all of the effects of the Holy Spirit's coming. In some ways, that would be a fool's errand. It's right that we look for the Spirit's work in our life, and it's good that we recognize what He has done, how He's changed us. And yet, we also have to recognize that we can never understand the fullness of what He's done, the extent of His effect in our lives. We're told that He prays on our behalf with moanings that are too deep for words we will never understand the full extent of what the Holy Spirit is doing for us and in us. But what I want to do this morning is I want to look at our passage and observe and learn from the immediate effect of the Holy Spirit's arrival. Are you with me? The immediate effect that we see of His arrival. With regard to the coming of the Spirit... We talked last week about the sound of a mighty rushing wind that filled the whole house where the disciples were staying. And in addition to that, we're told that there appeared tongues of fire that distributed themselves and rested on each one of them. This was a sign, like the wind, the Holy Spirit coming down upon them. Both signs are signs of power, fire, wind, both powerful forces. Wind, unseen, but whose effects and presence are felt. Fire, which is both felt and seen. Verse 3 literally says that there appeared to them tongues, plural, of fire, distributing themselves and it, singular, which is interesting, Rested upon them. And I take that to mean that the fire is not the Holy Spirit, but it is a sign, it's the symbol of the Holy Spirit. Tongues of fire distributed themselves, and then the Holy Spirit came into the lives of those that were there. The next verse declares that He didn't just they didn't receive, just receive the Holy Spirit, but they were filled with the Spirit's power, just as the house was filled with the wind. But here in verse 3, the fire being distributed to each of them is emblematic of the Spirit being given to them. And throughout the Bible, if you're not familiar with the Bible, God often uses the symbol of fire to represent His presence with His people. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, God describes Himself by saying that He is a consuming fire. It's a way that He describes Himself. If you were to look back into the Old Testament... There's a number of instances of fire, and they almost always represent God's presence. A couple of them would be in Exodus, when Moses has been told by God, hey, you're going to lead my people uh, out of Egypt. He's he's on his way back from Midian, and he encounters the burning bush. Many of you have heard of this, this idea of Moses before the burning bush. And what that is is he's traveling out in the wilderness, and he comes upon a burning bush But this isn't just a a, a bush of bramble that suddenly caught on fire from the heat of being out in the desert. No, he comes upon it and the voice of God comes to him and it says, Moses, take off your sandals. You are on holy ground. Now, God wasn't the fire, but the fire symbolized God's presence. Moses was in the presence of God and that ground was holy. Fire represents God's presence. Again, In the life of Israel, there's something called the Shekinah glory, the the glorious presence of God. And after the Israelites are delivered from the land of Egypt, you might recall that as they're out wandering in the wilderness, in what's called the Exodus, they're searching for the promised land. And they are being led by Moses, but Moses is also being led. And who's leading Moses? Well, the Lord is leading Moses. And how is the Lord leading Moses? Well, he's leading Moses by a a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of what by night? A pillar of fire. The presence of God with his people, protecting them, setting them apart. Fire represents presence, the presence of God's spirit. When we read that tongues of fire came and distributed themselves to those in the room, we should recognize that this is the highly anticipated giving of the Holy Spirit. We read in verse 4 an outstanding statement. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Fulfillment. Everything was predicated on this. The success of the disciples' future, the completion of the task that had been given to them by Jesus and to us, hung on the fact that they would receive Christ's Spirit. Without the Spirit, the pneuma, the breath, the body of Christ's church would be a mere corpse, with all her parts but no life. These are wonderful words. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that many of you have heard of the Holy Spirit, You may be able to point to theological distinctions or cooperations between the work of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of God the Father, but do you know the Holy Spirit? Can you say with assurance that you've seen His work in your life, that you have felt Him warm your soul, your your love, the love of your heart toward Him and toward His righteousness? Do you see the effect of His presence? Many Christians think that the filling of the Holy Spirit is something to be devoutly believed in, but not really experienced. And it's not enough to merely believe in the Holy Spirit. It's far too short of a goal to receive the Holy Spirit. We must desire to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about that as we go on. The Bible frequently makes a distinction between receiving and being filled. We'll talk more about that later in the book of Acts. But it's not just enough to believe in the Holy Spirit. It's not just enough to receive him. We should desire to be filled with him so that the glorious work of God can be accomplished through us so that God might be glorified. You must seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Except a man be born of a spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus said. And if, therefore, the Holy Spirit does not dwell in you, and has not made you a new creation by his miraculous power, you are still in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. That's what Peter will say in a few chapters that we'll come to in Acts 8. Only the true Christian knows what it is to receive the Spirit. And there are fewer Christians who know what it is to be filled to the brim with the Spirit. Have you experienced the Holy Spirit? Have you encountered him? Do you know his power? Do you know what it is to be used as his instrument? May we not be merely content to believe in his existence, but may we seek to be filled with his power. The world doesn't really need more Christian influencers. It doesn't really need more Christian media or more Christian songs or more Christian Financial principles. It doesn't even need larger, more influential churches. What the world needs is the power of the Holy Spirit. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Do you know His power in your life? Has He taken you, a coward, a liar, a fornicator, an idolater, and made you into one of His his people? Co-heir with Christ, as Mario said during our prayer of confession this morning. A prophet, priest, and king. Do not presume on the riches of God's kindness. Don't assume that God is good with you on the basis of you being good with yourself. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Maybe you, maybe you have. And I'd ask you this. Do you desire to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Do you long for the power of the Holy Spirit to be poured out in your life Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We said those words just a few moments ago. This will only be the case by the influence of the Spirit on your heart first and then on the hearts of your neighbors and your co-workers and your friends and your relatives. That's the only way it will work. For all who desire to see the Holy Spirit work with power, there is something that we must pay careful attention to in our passage. What is the effect of the Spirit's coming? What is it? What is the effect of the Holy Spirit's arrival? Well, it's right there on the page. It says, they began to speak with tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, we'll talk more about this as we go on in Acts, but many of you are aware of the the gift of tongues that Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians. Our passage here this morning shares similarities with that, in both this passage and in, 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 in Paul's writing, God is glorified, and we are encouraged, and there are words that are spoken. But I think that it would be a mistake to see what's happening here and what Paul references elsewhere is the same thing. While language, while the language that Paul refers to seems to be a, a, an unknown or a secret language of God, the miracle that happens in our passage is that men speak of the mighty deeds of God in a foreign language. It would be like me coming up here and having the ability to speak in Spanish. I I took Spanish for many, many years, but my my dear Spanish teacher, Mrs. Cleveland, would say it is almost a miracle if I could actually speak Spanish. I was terrible. So this is not them speaking an unknown secret language. This is them speaking a known language, but a a language of not Jerusalem, of another area, or many other areas, for that matter. Verse 5 says there were Jews living in Jerusalem... Devout men of every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, that wind, the mighty rushing wind, the crowd came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing the disciples speak in his own language. Now, in the Old Testament, the Israelites had been faithless to God. And so God decided that as a consequence for that, unfaithful, that lack of faithfulness, they were going to go into captivity into foreign lands. And as a result of that, the Israelites who had once occupied the land of Canaan were dispersed all over. They no longer only lived in Canaan, but we see in our passage that there are Jewish Hebrews that are living uh, not just in Jerusalem, but from in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus Asia, Egypt, Rome, and more different countries around that. It's a, it's a very wide, extensive area for that region of the world. Perhaps the people that had been dispersed had moved back to Jerusalem, or maybe they were just there for Pentecost. I, I think that that's not really a, an important fact of the matter as far as I can tell. But they are there in Jerusalem, whatever the case may be. They were in this city, and they heard the sound of the rushing, roaring wind. This loud noise caused all of them to come and inquire what's going on. I mean, how many of you guys a few weeks ago heard that sonic boom from the jets that were flying over Toledo? How much? Nobody heard it. Wow. Well, we'll move on. All right. There was a sonic boom where I live, and it seemed like everyone was wondering what had happened. Had the quarry had an explosion? Had there been some sort of accident? No. It was the Coast it was National Guard having some fun up in the sky, right? We heard this noise and we're all wondering. Same thing. They heard this mighty rushing wind. They're all wondering, what in the world's going on? They come to the spot where the noise had come from and they heard another noise. They heard the disciples speaking about God in their native tongue, not, 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 not in Hebrew, but in the language that they grew up speaking, where they were from originally. Even though they were Hebrews, they were displaced. And they said, how is it that we hear them in our own language for which we were born? We're told that they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying, what does this mean? The effect of the Holy Spirit's coming was that the disciples were moved to speak about the greatness of God. And when they did so, it came out in a foreign tongue. Are we all on the same page? Okay. I want you to think about this for a moment. This is the foretold outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is the arrival of the helper that is going to cause them to do greater works than what took place during Jesus' earthly time of ministry. I want to ask you this. This is the effect. They're speaking about the greatness of God in a foreign tongue. Is it surprising Is this effect what you would have predicted? Do you think that this is what the apostles were anticipating? The truth is that in contrast with the things that the disciples had already experienced, this could seem a bit underwhelming, taken at face value. Speaking a different language. These guys have already experienced food miraculously multiplying out of nothing. They've seen men that are blind regain sight. They've watched lepers be cleansed. They've received power themselves. If you remember, there was a point where the disciples asked Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven to consume a wicked city. Maybe most powerfully of all, they've seen the dead be raised. They've even had a hand in it after Jesus rose again from the dead. All of these things defy nature. You simply cannot cut up a fish into enough pieces to feed 5,000 people. You certainly can't raise the dead. By simple contrast, after seeing the dead raised, talking in a different language may not have exactly been what the disciples were anticipating. There's even mixed feedback on the part of those that were there, isn't there? Some were amazed by it, others were mocking and joking about it. It's clear that they're not convinced. Don't you think that for the grand entrance, the Holy Spirit would have done something really spectacular? Don't you think that he would have come down in show-stopping fashion like the fire that came down when Elijah called it down from heaven? The fire that licked up the sacrifice and the water that he had poured on the altar and even the stones that he had erected the altar with, leaving everyone speechless and totally confident that that this was the God of Israel. The truth is that if we think about the scenario honestly, we will admit that we might have anticipated something more spectacular or more powerful, something that no one could mock, something that no one could deny or chalk up to being drunk. Listen, the point, this is the point at which God speaks to us. If we are underwhelmed, then we need to align ourselves more closely with God and His ways. That's the message for you this morning. If we're underwhelmed by this, and I think if we're honest and we think about it thoughtfully, we'll say, yeah, it seems like kind of a, hmm, I would have expected something more. Therein is where we need to align ourselves with God and with His ways. There was nothing lacking in the coming of the Holy Spirit. It was perfect. It was powerful. But what is lacking is our understanding of the great power of the Word and its speaking through us. That's the lack. That's what we're missing. Your speech is powerful. Your words are powerful. The Word of God is powerful. It is the main Central conduit by which the Holy Spirit works in the hearts of mankind. Do you understand that? How will they hear without a preacher? Your words and God's words through you are the central conduit by which the Holy Spirit accomplishes His will and His work in this world. And if you don't think that that's true, your heart needs to align more closely with what God says. The Holy Spirit is here declaring that His will will not be carried out by supernatural, supernaturally making everyone unilaterally conform to Him, nor will it be carried out by physical revolution or by political takeover. It will be through the speech and the words of those that love Him. Notice here that those that are amazed do not actually come to any conclusion about the matter based on the miracle. They say that they wondered at it. They were amazed, but they were perplexed. And in future, in next week or in a couple of weeks, we will see that God works through the in their hearts as Peter gets up and preaches a very simple sermon, not in a foreign language, but in the language of the Hebrews. And there will be a great end gathering. We will read about the miraculous things, the supernatural, extraordinary things that happen all throughout the book of Acts. But what I want us to do is, right now, notice the immediate effect of the Holy Spirit's coming. He is communicating something here about the nature of His work in and through us. That's what I want us to recognize. Everything in this passage, you look at your Bibles, everything in this passage is about what is spoken and heard. You can, If you look down through it, you just see those words time and time and time again. They spoke, they heard, their tongues were distributed. We're going to talk about that in just a second. The passage is not so much about asking God to allow us to speak in another language or about buying Rosetta Stone as it is about a prophecy that we hear 2,000 years later in America will speak the mighty deeds of God to those around us and that the power of the Holy Spirit will use it. And that in Mexico, our Mexican brothers and sisters will speak the mighty deeds of God in Spanish by the power of the Holy Spirit. No longer is the truth about Christ going to be limited to the Jews. The Spirit is going to carry it to every nation on the tongues of the men and women who love Him. And through your voice and through your words about Him, The Spirit will accomplish His work with power in your life and with power in the earth. But do we think that there's power in that? Or do we want something else? Do we want another form of power? To press the importance of our words declaring the greatness of God a bit further, I want us to consider one more thing. We're told that when Jesus was 30 years old, he started his public ministry. And at the outset of that ministry, he was baptized by John the Baptist. Many of you will remember that fact. And when he was baptized by John the Baptist, we're told after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove. When the Spirit descended on Jesus, it appeared as a dove. When the Spirit came down upon the apostles and the others that were in that upper room, it appeared as a fire. Is this random? Is this just simply the flavor of the month? Of course not. There's meaning to be mined here. The figure, the shape of the dove that came down upon Jesus had meaning. It had connotation that was fit for Christ's office and for the nature of Christ. It it was pure. It was peaceful. It was innocent. It was sacrificial. Doves would be sacrificed in the Old Testament, especially by the poor who couldn't afford something more. And it wasn't Jesus, a sacrifice, especially for those that were poor and needy. So too, a tongue of fire has a a meaning tailored to our nature and role. The fire appeared as a tongue. It's a strange thing. It's a tongue. Not a sword. Not a philosopher's theorem. Not a pen. A tongue. But not just any tongue, a flaming tongue. A tongue that had the presence of God, as we talked about earlier, abiding in it a tongue that speaks the pure words of God that have been refined in the fire seven times, a tongue that is committed to righteousness and holiness and that is instructed and bound by the word of God himself. All of Jesus' miracles were physical symbols of his spiritual work. He opened the eyes of the blind. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. These were all physical symbols of his spiritual work in them. The Holy Spirit's miracle here is also a physical sign of the spiritual work that he does through us. Jesus condescended to you as the word. The Holy Spirit came, sent from Christ, as a tongue of fire. Love the Word of God. Trust the Word of God. Obey the Word of God and do what it says. And guess what? You will see the greatness of God. You will see the power of the Holy Spirit poured out in your life. You will see change in yourself that you've wanted to see but long abandoned hope of ever seeing. And as you do that, I want to ask you, will you testify to the greatness of God? That is what, that is the effect of the Holy Spirit being given. They testified to the greatness of God. The miracle was that it was in a foreign language. But no less important than the foreign language is the words that were said. They testified to the Word of God so that others... The point of the miracle was to only make it practical so that others understood. You recognize that. Will you testify to the greatness of God? Will you declare the mighty deeds of God in a way that those around you can understand? Are you committed to that work? If you desire to see more of the Holy Spirit's power in your life, here's what you need to do. Perhaps you need to consider whether you would see more of his power in your life if you would speak more about the greatness of God. I think that if you committed and I committed to speaking the greatness of God very at, in normal ways that are just understood by those around you, I think the promise of this passage is you would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Is that something you're willing to do? Do you really desire to be filled by the Holy Spirit? Let's pray.